All right, welcome back to the Blaze Experience once again. We are here for episode 73 today, and we actually just had our one-year anniversary, so thank you everyone to listen to that podcast. It was a really awesome podcast, a lot of fun to record, a lot of fun to put together, so thank you everyone for listening to that. But today we actually have another special podcast with us. We are actually going to interview Brian Giambi from Undead Labs, but before we get to that, real quick, we have a couple of news items at the top. We have our next stream happening tomorrow, 12 p.m. to 4 p.m. Eastern Time. We are going to stream some State of Decay 2, and actually, the update is coming out tomorrow, because you're going to be hearing this on Monday the 25th, so the big update, Choose Your Own Apocalypse, is coming out. We're going to be streaming that, and we're going to have a lot of fun on Mixer, so join us on Mixer.com slash Experience, and we will have a lot of fun with that update. And then we're also going to do a bonus stream at night, probably, because Actually, before the Undead Labs team announced the update date, we had another game coming out that we planned to stream. We planned to stream Generation Zero, which comes out the same day, so we kind of have to um, piggyback on both of them there. So basically, we will actually do uh, two different streams that day, one for each game. And then our next podcast is actually going to release this Friday, so you're going to get basically two in one week here. And that is going to be on 329. We're going to go over the patch notes for the Choose Your Own Apocalypse with Jeffrey Card. So he's going to sit down with us, uh, similar to what we're doing with Brian today. We're going to go over the whole patch notes and talk about everything that's in the patch notes. Because not only are there Nightmare and Dread Zones that are coming with this update, there's actually a patch as well, which has some uh, interesting goodies in there. So we will go over those patch notes, and that should be a lot of fun as well. But without further ado, we will get to our guest today. Today with us, we have Senior System Designer from Undead Labs, Brian Giambi. Please welcome Brian to the podcast. How are you, Brian? I'm well. How are you, Derek? I'm doing pretty good, thank you. I'm glad you could join us today. Yeah, me too. And, you know, I kind of uh, joke and, you know, I basically call you in my head that, you know, you're like the state of the K2 base wizard. You're like the guy that, you know, <laughs> designs the whole base. You're like the wizard of the base. So. No, it's a, it's a, <laughs> it's important to say anytime you get a compliment like that, that it, everything about game dev is collaborative, right? It's never just a one-person show. Uh, a bunch of folks work on the base. But it is safe to say I've spent a lot of time thinking about and working on the sort of home base experience and the stuff that you do there in State of Decay 2. No, and I appreciate that too, but I just kind of picture, you know, like in your uh, you know, wizard tower, you're just setting up all this base <laughs> stuff. And... <laughs> oh, I can only imagine that would be a fantastic work environment some of the time. Yeah, it, it seems like it'd be a lot of fun, so... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, before you actually got to Undead Labs, of course, you know, you obviously had a early part of your career. So, you know, before you entered into your game career, what kind of games did you used to play as a kid? Uh, as a kid, I played, oh, man, I played a ton of stuff. So the first game I ever spent money I earned on was a copy of Mega Man X, not for the SNES, but I was, I was like, it was young. There was a weird PC port of Mega Man X that came with its own controller back when they had like the joystick ports that were like the 17 pin nightmares. And right. so I remember buying that at a PC store where like it was PC parts and PC games both at a store. All of that was still a thing. And um, just getting stuck on Chill Penguin for like four hours one day and then finally blasting through that and then getting through the rest of it. And so like I started there and then I would play pretty much every Final Fantasy uh, from nine on. Because uh, I got them as like hand me downs for my cousins, and we would like my disc two would break, my cousin's disc three would break, and we would trade, get progress going again. When we got that back up uh, later on, started to move to more PC stuff. Uh, so I wound up playing uh, Warcraft three and Starcraft a lot. Uh, spent many years playing pretty much just World of Warcraft. Um, that was 
not an uncommon story for people in my life at this point, but uh, I definitely got a few good years in there. Did like 40-man max, bunch of raiding. Um, yeah, see, that's one thing I can't really relate to because I actually never tried at Warcraft, so I, I can't you know, relate to that. But um, I've heard, you know, it's very addicting if you get into it. <laughs> it definitely it, it can be addicting for some. For me, it was more like I made a bunch of friends there, and that was my way of just seeing those people and spending quality time. And so it became like a welcoming place for me. Uh, but Warcraft is particularly important for me because it's kind of the reason I got into game development in the first place. Uh, so like technically with StarCraft, but more with Warcraft, there was a level editor that shipped with the game. And uh, I remember this very well because I found this when I was at my parents' house recently, where there was a strategy guide that you could buy for StarCraft. And at the back of the strategy guide were 15 pages of like how to use the level editor to make stuff. And I remember being like like a young teenager and picking this up and making something and realizing, oh, oh man, somebody I think somebody gets paid to do this all the time. That would be amazing. <laughs> right. And like later realizing, <laughs> wait a minute, I could I could have health insurance for this. Okay, I need to focus now. And then, like, that literally led to my choice of college. Went out to DigiPen out in here. Like, I, I grew up in New York, so this was, like, moved 3,000 miles from home to learn to make video games because I was screwed up. It's actually where I grew up, too. It's New York, so. Oh, uh, where in New York? Uh, Plattsburgh, way up north, so I don't like, know if you really... Upstate. Yeah, no, we were... I'm yeah, out, uh, way Long upstate. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's that's a little bit lower than me, so... <laughs> just, just a bit. <laughs> <laughs> but, hey, it's still New York, so... <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, so, you know, I played a bunch of stuff, um, got into the industry because of the stuff that I played, um, came out to Washington because of the opportunity to learn, and then uh, got my first job while I was still in school, kept working, met my wife, bought a house, now I'm uh, hanging out here for a while. That's awesome, and, you know, uh, is there anything early in your career like that that kind of inspired you more than, I guess, other games that, you know, wanted, okay, this is what I want to do for my life? Oh, totally. Uh, for a while, I think I always wanted to make eve because i wanted to make like a big crazy simulated world full of spaceships with like trade economies and pirates and all that stuff and then i played the thing and was like okay i thought this was my dream game and now i understand why it is not my dream game right maybe i need a new dream game where you don't wait three months to finish learning the learning skill for a five percent bonus but i still felt like that idea was really interesting to me and like you know someday i might do some indie thing in that in that spirit um i guess some of the big stuff was a was it freelancer was pretty awesome at one point, uh, I mean, WoW was a huge influence. Uh, I stuck with the Civ series since I picked it up, although I picked it up at like four. Um, and then, I mean, in college, I actually got pretty into shooters for a while. I played a lot of Call of Duty, uh, Modern Warfare right when it came out, um, did a Battlefield right after that. So I've been sort of all over the map in terms of what I play. Yeah, that's kind of the same story for me. You know, I, I did play more Call of Duty back, you know, around the Modern Warfare days, but now I've kind of gotten out of that a little bit because um, it just felt kind of samey to me a little bit. So I yeah. tended to go towards other games now. It's tough. I mean, for me, like Call of Duty was my stress relief. Like I would, eh, we worked crazy hours at the college I was at. So, you know, after pulling like a 12 hour, 13 hour stretch of just work, I would just go home and I would turn the in-game music off and I would put on some like techno playlist and just run around free-for-alls with a shotgun for like an hour. And that was my chill out du jour. Hey, that works though, you know. It's yeah, still no, as long it, as you have fun with it, so. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was, a, I was a good time with that. <laughs> but obviously, you're with Undead Labs now. So, where did that jump happen for you? Where you okay? I went from early in my career to Undead Labs. How did that happen exactly? Uh, so, the first job I got uh, at a college was at a place called the Amazing Society, which was a uh, small MMO developer out in Issaquah, Washington. Uh, I actually met somebody from that studio at a trade show that I was volunteering for as a college student. And he was like, how oh, I need two level designers. Do you want a job? And like, I felt my childhood flash before my eyes was like, yes. <laughs> so that, 
became my first gig. Um, that game was called Marvel Superhero Squad Online. It was like a MMO for kids that you played in the browser in Unity because that was a thing for a hot minute. Um, after that, um, one of my mentors from that shop uh, went to a place called Glue Mobile. And when I was looking for work after we sort of wrapped up on Superhero Squad, um, she had told me that they were still hiring. Uh, and that was a chance to go into mobile, which was you know, maybe not like my preferred platform at the time, but I was I had previously worked like in web, and web was a weird way to make games. And so there wasn't a lot of opportunities for you to start in like a web game and then go elsewhere, especially because I was like making levels for a kid's game, which was interesting to me. But like, it doesn't look great when you're trying to apply for like shooter levels. And they're like, these don't feel like the kind of thing that we make. And right, so makes went sense. Over to mobile and spread my wings a little bit and started doing what I would now call systems work. But really, it was like just broad gameplay. So uh, I worked on a game called Tons of Guns, which is sort of like imagine the Borderlands gun drop system, but you're playing like this on your phone, and all the combat is just two guys walking left and right, and you're actually aiming your phone in 3D and tapping to shoot. Works a little better than you would think. It wasn't amazing, but it was surprisingly <laughs> good for what it was. And so I got to like sort of sharpen my teeth a little bit, just doing like core progression and stuff for that. Um, that went well enough that I got called on to Deer Hunter, which uh, actually Jeff from Undead Labs or Jeff Card also worked on. So we get the joke about trading places on Deer Hunter more or less. Yeah, I was gonna say I remember him mentioning he was on that game. So <laughs> yeah, no, I mean he he went off of it like a month or two before I went onto it. And then uh, <laughs> that's funny. You guys just kind of just mess each other. Then. Oh, totally. Like we worked at the same shop <laughs> at the same time for a little while, but it was mostly ships in the night with Deer Hunter. So I went onto that and like tuned up. Uh, so like I did all the gunplay on tons of guns and also the progression and then went to Deer Hunter and sort of like did the same thing where it was like, hey, we need an economy for this that makes sense over the course of like weeks, if not months of play. And we need to like balance all the weapons, but those weapons need to fit into like the game while also being fun. And so my job was make it fun to shoot stuff, but then also make the numbers go up over time in a way that people understand. So did that on Deer Hunter. Uh, I wasn't super jazzed to be in mobile. At that point, I had gotten sort of what I wanted out of it. And then I was actually at uh, PAX West. Uh, after shipping Deer Hunter, and was I actually wasn't going to go that year because I'd gone to PAX like four times, and my wife was like, "Can we please go to PAX? I really want to go this year." And we did. And then I found the Undead Labs guys at the old booth on the top of the stairs by the entrance to the like the the sort of shopping area in the right. windows. And um, I remember talking to them. And I was like, "Oh man, you guys made State of Decay," and they're like, "We did." And I was like, "How did you get this to to ship? How did you not get this thing? <laughs> How did they not turn this into like a generic third person?" shooter for you and like i got a whole bunch of interesting stories about like the development of the game and at the end of it i was like that that sounds amazing i had a blast playing state of decay one uh are you hiring any designers and the guy like looked at his friend and looked back at me he goes like yeah I'm like, <laughs> can, can we get lunch he's like sure and, like a week later i was getting lunch with the design director and a couple of other guys from the shop uh jeffrey was there so we got to sort of sync up again after glue because he had come to undead labs first um I told them a lot about the stuff I liked making, the stuff I liked playing, the stuff I wanted to do. They told me about what was then like the very earliest ideas of what State of Decay 2 would eventually become, and that sounded exciting to me. Uh, we actually worked on a little thing called Moonrise first, which was just a whole separate like side. Book. I think I've heard of that. Yeah, it's a it's a good story for another day. <laughs> we should talk about State of Decay 2 today. <laughs> someday we could we could follow up on Moonrise. It was <laughs> sounds good. <laughs> oh. No, it does sound like, you know, a lot of the stories, uh, especially from Undead Labs, seem to be, you know, these like chance encounters like, oh, yeah, we just met, you know, at this conference one time. And, you know, you know, it kind of worked after that. So that's kind of seems like, you know, Jeffrey's story as well. So it's uh, games. Games are weird that way. Like everybody I know in games, like, it's it's the exception to get a job in games 
through like what looks like a normal channel like it's it's less so nowadays like i think we're better about it in the last maybe five ten years than it was true before that but especially if you ask a bunch of old timers their stories are all like oh i was working it or like i was working at a game shop and some guy came up with a prototype like it's always some crazy story about how people wound up getting paid to make video games and then stick around doing that so my, my yeah, story is not as crazy sense. as most but <laughs> yeah i mean and so from there like i basically got an offer a couple of weeks after that lunch took it and then started on moonrise and then you know when that wrapped up started on state of decay 2 no that's a really cool path too and you know i'm glad that you enjoyed the first game as well you know i'm sure a lot of fans are going to be glad to hear that too um but the zombie genre in general, is that something you've always been into? Or was State of Decay your first, you know, kind of game you play with that genre? Or did you have a lot of zombie genres under your belt before that? I have thoughts on this. Um, I really enjoyed State of Decay 1. Not... The zombies are an interesting way to build the experience for me, but it wasn't about the zombies when I played it, like as a player. Like for me, it was more like I came to it because I liked playing a lot of like indie simulation games and like survival right. stuff and like a little bit of builder um apocalypse things and so like using zombies to create a compelling apocalypse where there are enemies to fight and a challenge that is always there is something i really enjoy but i like it for what it does in video games more than i like zombies in sort of a broad mythical sense and so like zombie genre to me is not something where i, I chase after that but a lot of the stuff that i like tends to use zombies to build the experience that they're delivering no it definitely makes sense to me too because i kind of have the same experience with state of decay in some senses where i'm not in it for the zombies per se I'm in it more for, like, the mechanics of the game itself. And right. I really love the mechanics behind State of Decay. It's not really about the zombies, per se. Like, I could be fighting, you know, I don't know, gerbils in State of Decay, and I'd be like, hey, <laughs> whatever. I like the mechanics. So. Sure. <laughs> I mean, also, so. like, the, the zombies are, like, a really useful way to make all those... Like, you want to let the player immerse themselves in the world, right? And, like, even if right. you're trying to build survival fantasy as, like, a flavor of game, zombies are really effective to do that because they're sort of a shorthand people already understand. They have certain expectations about Definitely. it. It gives you a bunch of starting places for, like, a lot of enemies work and what's the AI like and what's it like to wander through the environment. And, like, if you don't go for something people already know, you have to conjure all of that up from thin air, which is, like, a very different kind of task than building something players have a sense already. So it, it makes a lot of sense. Although I'm sure in some senses it's hard to figure out what type of zombies you really want to develop because you know there's like the world war z zombies that you know are faster than lightning and then there's like the zombies that are you know slower than dirt and then like yep. say to the case kind of the middle of that so it, it, i'm sure it's kind of like a challenge to figure out what exactly zombies you want to have but ultimately for us we get to be a little bit greedy because we have like a, a pretty wide variety if you play the game right we have the right. slow zombies we have the fast zombies we have the ferals we have the giant crazy bloaters and juggernauts and sort of the more more out there stuff um, but like i remember when i was first introduced to the game and they were talking to me about like you know here's how to think about zombies while working on this they were like zombies are like the weather they're just a part of the world now they're everywhere sometimes it's not so bad sometimes it's freaking horrible and like as a player you sort of don't get to choose the environment that the zombies create for you you just have to deal with it and then a lot of the challenge comes from just this moment to moment of like wandering through the world and then you get you know a few moments of peace and the music is all nice and then suddenly there's a horde on you and the whole thing is a crazy frantic race and, like, you choose the environment, you choose the zombies you want for the game to, like, create that experience because that's sort of the core of State of Decay, or at least at the moment's moment level. No, it definitely makes sense. And I think that's what everyone wants is where you can have a variety of experiences like that. And that's kind of what I love about State of Decay. I get that variety of experiences every time I play. Yeah, I mean, uh, it definitely relies on sort of a, a constant refreshing of what you're doing by giving you goals that require you to sort of play sort of different experiences. Yeah, and I really appreciate that about the game. Me too. In terms of Undead Labs, though, what's kind of your favorite thing about working there? You know, what's uh, what speaks to you about Undead Labs as opposed to maybe another studio or something? 
I mean, a lot of it is like, for me, it's the context of the other places I've worked and then coming here where, A, I got to work on something I actually really enjoy playing. Like, I am closer to the demographic of people who play this game than I have ever been for something else I've worked on. Um, right. I got, I mean, at, at some level, like, this is relatively selfish, but I got to have a lot to do with what the actual result was. Like, Undead Lab does a pretty good job of not making people feel like cogs in a machine. Like, we were, when I joined, we were, like, less than 30 people. I think we're, like, around 70 now, or so we said on the stream. And so, like, that's that's not as true as it was in the early days, but, like, it can't be when you get to be, like, a larger shop and you try to take on more ambitious titles. But, you know, for me, it's always been about, like, having the ability to do consequential work like i want to make something that people talk about and that they care about and that leaves them with fond memories because like i look back on my own life and like i played a lot of video games and there were you know points in my childhood and maybe even like my early adulthood where like life was not amazing and having a good game to sink my teeth into and just you know tune the rest of the world out was a beautiful thing and i like being able to know that i'm giving that back and so for me it's the ability to make stuff that i think has the potential to be that for people and just getting the chance to do a good job and working with people who are capable and excited and passionate and are who are happy to collaborate towards making stuff that we genuinely believe our players will really be able to have a good time with yeah and i want to say too on my perspective i mean everyone that i've seen you know on the streams for undead labs everyone i've interacted with the undead labs you all seem amazing and there's never been a single person at undead labs i'm like oh man that that guy seems like a jerk or something you know so <laughs> you, you all you all seem great so <laughs> sure that is kinder than the truth but i'll take it <laughs> <laughs> no problem. <laughs> but I think that, you know, it really speaks to what Undead Labs is doing because, you know, you, you guys interact with the fans very well. And uh, a lot of studios don't do that nowadays. And I think the fan base really appreciates that. I mean, it's 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 easy to underestimate how much work it is to do that well. And ultimately, we've always been a small shop and we've never had a ton of resources, or at least, you know, now that we've been acquired, that's maybe a different different world. But like our DNA is one where you do that in a scrappy way because it's the only way that you have. And it's important to do it because right. like, what, what is the point of making these things if you're not going to make them for the people who play them? It is worth talking to and understanding and listening to the people who play your game so you can understand the context of the work that you do. And so like, that's always been like, it is a, a delight of mine that I get to interact with the community in the way that we do. Like sometimes that's Discord, sometimes that's Twitter, sometimes that's Reddit, sometimes that's the stream. Um, I wish we had the ability to do more, right? I wish we had like a better or more cohesive way to just interact with lots of people all the time. But especially in the last few months, um, I feel like we've stepped things up in a way that is, is actually pretty awesome. Like, especially versus when I joined up, like we have more people now that are actually more focused on this. We have lovely staff that help put together stuff. So like we have like the streams every week. So it's been, it's been nice to see the continuation of that from the early days all the way to now. Yeah, I agree. And I mean, even just the streams, for example, you know, there's not many studios out there that still do a stream every single week. You know, usually um, there's a lot of studios that, OK, we have something big to talk about. We'll do like, you know, once uh, once in a month thing or, you know, maybe once, uh, you know, every quarter thing or. But, you know, you guys do it every week without fail, basically, unless, you know, obviously there's something that happens like that snowstorm, for example. That, like, like life happens or like sometimes just crazy. Yeah, exactly. Lines, but, but ultimately, a lot of it's just about like comfort level. Like we're not trying to make sure that we only come out here and do a Twitch stream and it's like a heavily produced crazy polished super scripted thing like we want to be a little bit more genuine with you guys and like try and feel like right. we're having a dialogue and a conversation and like it's as much about hearing what you guys have to say as just saying things at the, at the community and so like that that tone has always made it like lower in scope to to participate which is really nice um and also just jeffrey's crazy passion about the stuff and goes to great lengths to make it true so not entirely by himself but like often as like this huge pillar that carries the stream on his back so i will always be grateful to his efforts on that I think all of us benefit from them. Yeah, he really does a great job. And I remember uh, it was kind of funny, you know, the week that he had off um, fairly recently, 
you know, he had to like give all these notes. He's like, okay, Brant, you know, here's all these notes for you. And <laughs> that's oh, kind of what he, he said. He like helped yeah. me set up to even run this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> like I was saying to him, I'm like, how do, I t- how do I even log into the streaming machine? I don't know what the password is. <laughs> right. What is the program that we're going to use? How do you recommend setting things up? And like, you know, I logged in and he like, he left the, the, the internal patch notes doc for the upcoming update up just so that I could have it here. Like he's, he's really thoughtful. He's a really nice guy. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he seems super helpful. And you know, I definitely appreciate that about him too. But in terms of the game, actually, now, uh, what is your favorite aspect of the game? I know you're deeply involved with the bases. Is your favorite aspect the base mechanics, or is it something else? Uh, so, I mean, like, the bases are something that I guess I get talked about a lot, but, like, I also worked on, like, like every time you shoot a gun in State of Decay 2, like, a bunch of people worked on that together, but, like, I spent a lot of time focusing on, like, the tuning of, like, how far up the screen does it go and how wide does the reticle go. So, like, the weapon tuning is something I focused on a lot. Um, like, the reload times and all that and durability and all that. Um, scavenging, too, so, like... When you're like looting houses, like I'm running ballots to try and make sure that you find stuff that makes sense in the environment, but also that it's like got the correct amount of resources on the map, and that the amount of time it takes you to find materials or food or meds is is reasonable and like changes over time in a way that makes sense. Um, I like to focus on just the core loop of like running around outside the base and then just having fun things happen to me. Uh, so like I try to I, I try to stay fairly broad in terms of like what I'm looking at, what I'm excited about on the game because I don't want any one piece to get so much attention that it like starves the rest uh is it's a game about balance, that makes sense all these different pieces moving at the same time they all have to be good um i will always be excited about the stuff in the base because a lot of the indie games that i play and i do tend to play a lot of indie games are like very builder or community simulation or like making cities like civ or city skylines or like rim world or uh, oxygen not included are all things that delight me and so, like, I like being able to make stuff that, like, echoes my, my taste as a player. But, like, in the interest of just doing my job well, I try not to focus too much on that stuff. No, that makes sense. And, you know, I, I really enjoy the base aspects myself. And for me, I think that probably be my favorite aspect of the game is all the base management stuff. And, you know, I recently, um, we had a State of Decay, School of Decay event where we kind of tried to teach newer players about different aspects of the game. And the part that I took on was actually, you know, how to set up a base that's sustainable and by sustainable i obviously mean you know okay you're not losing materials per day you're not losing food per day (laughs) um no i mean you don't need three hydroponics in every case like i basically proved on that stream that any base including the starting base you can actually set up a viable base for like a eight nine person community that works so the starting base is pretty tricky but you can still do it so (laughs) you really have to like you know work with your outposts and I really love that aspect of the game where you can kind of, you know, min and max, sort of like you were talking about in Warcraft a little bit, where you can kind of min and max things, okay, you know, I have to do this to get this to work out right, I have to do this to get my morale right, and I really love those uh, mechanics in the game. Uh, thank you, that's that's very kind. Um, and, you know, many ma- many hours were spent to, to make this the case. Um, <laughs> right. And, and surely the journey along the way involved a lot of frustration and a lot of work. Um, no, it's, it's, it's great that that stuff works when it does. You know, it's, it's always tough because when we're tuning it, we're always thinking, like, you know, who is this for? Who is going to get the most out of this? Which which of our sort of like personas within the player base that we have are going to get the most out of this thing? And are we treating them all with love? And are we giving them all like a balanced approach to what's there? Um, so I'm always delighted to hear that somebody's having a good time juggling their morale. But, you know, we hear just as many stories of people that are like, oh my God, why is my community fighting all the time? I don't understand. And <laughs> right. all, all I can think of is like, oh, I want to put in like more clear menu stuff. And like, maybe we should cut away here and there. But, you know, once you've shipped the thing, you, you stop changing it quite so much. And so there was a, a journey of sort of accepting like yep no game is ever done they just ship this one shipped we will we will we will love it we will make it better where we can but ultimately like that was what 
we made. And the rest of it you just have to hold on to for the future. Right. And like speaking of morale, like you were talking about, I actually made myself a challenge one time of getting my morale maxed out at 100. And I did it, but I didn't keep it there just because there's no <laughs> super great reward for keeping it at 100. So I didn't uh, keep it there. But <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's uh, man. So like, that's like, there's this pile of like 160 something things of, man, I would love it if we had really done X. And, like, somewhere out right. there is, like, super cool prize or reward feedback that's like, holy crap, you maxed out your morale. Something <laughs> right. should come from that. <laughs> it, it would be nice, but, I mean, you know, I, I definitely understand that, you know, not everything can be perfect like that, so oh, it's just, it's always, uh, I, I still it's, enjoyed the challenge. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you did. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that, that one's on the shelf with the rest. <laughs> but in that terms, you know, what do you think worked out best with the base system? And is there anything that, you know, kind of didn't um, fulfill your original intent that you had? So there was um, so there's a specific thing I could I could point you at that you'll actually be able to see. Um, so have you ever actually checked somebody into the infirmary because they have blood plague after the tutorial? Yes. Actually, so, Brant did it say on the stream. Ah, so like that moment where you check a character in and it's like, I'm going to slot this person into this facility and it's going to do a thing. Like, our original hope is that that would be, like, a much more, like, frequent component of the base experience. Like, we were going to, like, you were going to attach a person to a spot and it was going right. to do something that reflected that character in some way. Like, not quite the degree where you need to, like, micromanage it, but where, like, for example, the Watchtower. Like, at one point, I remember we were trying to set it up where you could put a specific character into the Watchtower and you would see what they had equipped. So you could be very specific about, like, oh, I want my shotgun guy over here and I want my guy with a 50 cal over here. Um, and, you know, we would hope to, like, build on that, and, like, maybe if you did put your gardener in the garden, that it grew more stuff, but that, uh, it turned out, like, just the time to get the menus to work correctly, for people to understand it, for the AI to respond appropriately, we recognized while it was in progress that we weren't going to have enough time to do it well, and we had to find a way to cut scope so we could ship the game on time, and so we wound up just doing a lot of... That makes of, sense. I mean, that's typically how it goes, so, like, you try to find a way to capture the same idea and to create the same incentives without spending as much time or creating as many bugs. And so the way it works now, we're like, character, you know, Bob has a skill. His gardening skill provides knowledge of gardening. Knowledge of gardening means all your gardens are upgradable. Like, and that's not necessarily the same experience as, like, saying Bob's going to go work the garden and make the garden better. But it does mean that if you have Bob, you have better food growth. Um, it's, you know, it relies a little bit more on stats and abstraction than I would like because it's, you know, the amount of players that will go down all the all the menus and see all the pieces and understand, oh, this is why I have this, is less than who would understand right. it if they were just looking at Bob, walk up to the garden, and then say, I'm good at this, right? Like, there's versions of that experience that are able to be enjoyed by a wider audience because they rely less on abstraction. And the hope was originally to be a little bit more clear and a little bit more, like, realized about, like, the why things were happening the way they were. But game's got a shit, and it's better to have something than nothing when you're relying on the base to provide the depth that we're providing. And so that got reduced to actions and passives instead of having that check-in concept sort of go go more broad than it did yeah i think that actually makes a lot of sense what you're saying there because you know someone like myself i would love that version where you know i get to like okay bob has to garden you know you know joe has to do this at task and other people have to do this task i would personally love it like that but i understand completely that you know not every player is going to love that i mean there's probably going to be a lot of players that you know they're like oh man i have to do this now what do i have to do yep. with this guy so <laughs> you know the early versions that we had we were actually uh, playing with automatically having people slot themselves into stuff so that if you didn't care about it it would just take care of itself and do an okay job but that if you had strong feelings about how it should work that you could go in and micro it yourself but like creating the system that allows you to support that depth without forcing the player to participate in it like that's a that's a difficult ux task that's a lot of menu stuff that's a lot of different interactions and ultimately means it's more work and more bugs 
And so just choosing not to solve that problem frees up those resources to make the rest of the game more polished and to make the features that we need to make to make the game more coherent. So on the shelf it goes. And with all those systems that, you know, you kind of help with, is there anything that sort of either became the meta or didn't become the meta that you kind of uh, surprised you? Let's see. Um, At some point we were really worried that shotguns would be too good um, because they were like the answer to ferals for a while. But ultimately, like, we there's a, there's a thing that happens when you're developing a game where the version of the game that you're testing on a day-to-day basis is so different from the final version. Like, there's this, right. there's this anecdote where, like, every video game's tutorial was played, like, a hundred times more than the rest of the game by its team. Because when they click play game, they're going to run through, like, the first hour, check the thing that they're working on, and then stop playing. And, like, the, the getting to hour 5 or 10 or 20 or 100 or 500 is just profoundly difficult when, like, your job is to keep making stuff and not just to play the game all day. That makes so, sense, yeah. you know, we have these ideas about what's going to be an issue and what's going to be a focus, and it's very difficult to, like, square that with reality before you ship, except to do long-term playtests, which we did some of. Um, let's see. I didn't expect cars to be as useful as weapons as they turned out to be. Um, I think towards the end of the game, we started to, like, tune it down a little bit, just to make sure that, like, we could make a game that had a pretty wide audience. Like, ultimately, that led to, like, the choose your own apocalypse update where we're trying to sort of come back around with that yeah and and now with that update you know cars are not really a weapon at all they they, they rate pretty fast (laughs) a part of me still thinks that they're too good in dread but i i have to take that instinct to just put it all into nightmare like it was really useful to have nightmare around so we when we could say like "Eh, is this really hard enough for the increased difficulty well yes because we have this other crazy thing where everybody who wants that experience will go and it can go there and that's fine yeah that makes sense too and you know from my perspective what kind of surprised me a little bit is speaking of the base things i actually expected the forge to be a lot more powerful but for me it ended up being you know kind of something i use like one time then i don't ever use it again because the weapons you can actually make in the forge the master weapons i thought those would be you know something that only is made in the forge but you can just buy those off most traders so the forge ended up being something i never really use anymore it's interesting to me because uh those weapons in my in my in my limited but comprehensive ish memory of all the different inventories of all the different traders like i think that what is it the, the materials or maybe the parts one can have some of them some of the time so i guess if yeah if you're doing the trade depot you can get to that but that's interesting that like like, when I look back on the way that works, I think, oh, it's rare to get access to these things from traders because of, like, my mental model of all the different frequencies of hitting all the things and, like, the odds right. of somebody choosing the trader leader versus warlord or the rest. And I, you know, I, I like to think of the weapons you make on the forge as being fairly rare, although it's, it's you know, clearly that's not always the case, right? Like, everybody's experience. They, they are fairly rare, but different. I mean, if you have, like, you know, mysterious wandering trader on the weekend, you can pretty much always find those type of weapons there or something yeah. like that, so... Mm-hmm. Good, good note. <laughs> um, I will tell you one one little fun thing about the forge is that uh, for an extremely long time you could not scrap materials for parts on the storage. That came in super late, like that was maybe a month and a half, two months before we shipped. That came back or that came into the game. Before that was there, the forge was the only way to make materials into parts. It was either that or finding the CNC mill. And so for a lot of the early development of the game, like you got as much value from the forge in the long run by having that resource conversion as you had from making sense, the yeah. weapons. But then in time, like. People who really, what happened with that is that we got this ever-increasing disparity between people that, like, read all the text in the game and knew how everything worked, and people that didn't engage to a huge level of depth but still expect it to be fun for them. And it's hard to tune difficulty for that because you get some players that understand every trick, every menu, they can, like, min-max their base to be self-sufficient, and they're telling you that the game is, like, too easy for them and that this is all fine. And then you get other players who just don't have that 
like sort of encyclopedic knowledge of all the different things that are available to them. And for them, the game can be like super difficult and there are people that are starving and the morale is always pretty low and they'll be losing survivors to frustration and fights and like leaving community and stuff like that. And they're both playing the same game, but the idea, like the game in their heads is different because they both have very different sort of subsets of information. And so like one of the things we tried to do to bring that in line was to put the scrap materials for parts thing way way earlier and i was like how early can i push it it's like let's i'm just gonna put this on storage everyone has this forever let's see how that feels and like we did that and then tuned it to be like the most inefficient version of that you could ever have so that there would still be some reason for the upgrades and like over time it actually meant like a lot of a lot more people were able to repair their weapons and like craft stuff in a way that was like like imagine a world where like you don't have that like and you haven't found out that you can get parts like some people will just not bother with like crafting suppressors or like fixing up every weapon they find and that's true yeah so by giving players that tool, it meant that they basically got to experience more of the game. So like the Forge suffered a little bit for that because it's no longer super special, but the overall amount of depth that most people saw was higher. But like looking back, I, I could still see us probably buffing the Forge a bit. I don't like facilities that expire. Like, uh, was it the training right. area and the shooting, or not the, was it training in the, the fighting gym? That's what we called it in the end. The they fighting like, gym, the like, shooting range. Yes. Uh, those didn't have their health and stamina buffs for a long time. And eventually we got feedback where people are like, I like this facility and then i get rid of it every time that feels weird it's like yeah yeah that does feel weird uh and so we were trying to think of what to do and the simple thing was just well screw it one of them gets the one big stat the other gets the other big stat now you have a reason to have these hang out in your base yeah because remember a while back um when i was you know a lot earlier on in my podcast i remember we had a conversation about the built-in fighting gym in the abandoned strip mall and i kind of said like i don't like how it's already built in i can't really choose what i want to do with that because it it kind of loses its use for me if i'm late in the end game right and hope, I was hoping that, like, the plus health bonus would feel more significant, you know, in terms of, like, not seeing the meta that players came to. Like, for our super advanced players, like, you folks are crazy good at stacking buffs and, like, churning through recruits to find the right hero bonuses and find the right traits. And, like, right. Minimax, <laughs> it's like, if you ever hear the guys who worked on the latest XCOM talk about uh, the way they feel about saves coming, like, their version of the game in their heads is one in which you accept the consequences of loss and you move forward and you just play the game as it is. But, like, when I was playing that game, I would be like, no one died. Dying is for chumps. I'm going to reload and never lose anyone ever because that's what I want to play this game as. Right. And so, like, you know, as a player, like, I get what's happening. And as a developer, like, you just have to force yourself to realize, like, you're not going to get to choose how people play your game. They're going to make a wide variety of choices. Some of them are going to min-max stuff to the point where they're like, oh, my guys, I have 350 health. Why do I care about this plus 20? And so, like, it's... it's <laughs> right, that's true. <sighs> you can't make everything for everybody but you know it's it's always like a voice in the back of my head that's like eh, that could be better more people could enjoy this so you know we try to be mindful of opportunities to do that where it's appropriate and we can test it but i think that's one of the cool things about state of decay is that you know no matter what type of player you are i feel that there's something for everyone like you know for myself for example what i was doing in that stool of decay event where I took like a community of 10 people and I like moved them into the bridge fort. A lot of people will probably <laughs> right. be like, why would you ever do that? But yeah, that's pretty I, nice. I did it. I did it for the challenge. Like, and I proved that awesome. you can take a, you can take a community of 10 people. You can move them to the bridge fort, and you can still make it sustainable. So what, I proved that in my stream. So, um, <laughs> I can't remember <laughs> off the top of my head what I had, but I believe I had a staging area as my one large facility. Really? Yeah. And that kind of offset the materials. And then I think I use the outpost to kind of offset some of the other costs. So you can, you, like you can do houses. it. But... <laughs> the houses, I think I needed um, a red talent bunk room. And then I think, I, it's, I guess you can kind of count as sort of a cheat. I had somebody with sleeping in shifts, so I had three less beds I needed. But 
So, that's awesome. Yeah, I found a way like, though. So. Uh, I'm, I'm glad you can have the kind of experience you can have with the thing that that is at the door. Because like, if I look back on it, like it's it's weird as a developer because I remember like the five other different versions of the experience that were there because of like subtle or unsubtle tuning differences or like we changed the way beds work at one point midstream like half the facilities didn't exist in the first go around the menus were super different and so like just knowing that after all that work like it's actually possible for people to be excited about the possibilities is it kind of just warms my heart yeah and i really appreciate all the work that you know everyone on the team has done but you know you specifically i'm making these balances because i really enjoy you know being able to move around to different bases and you know try out what that base has to offer because i do kind of feel that the container for is sort of overly used in the meta and i wanted to prove <laughs> that you know you can use plenty of other bases and still make them work and i i do kind of wish that the um passive boost of the you know eight beds for the container fort went away but i think a lot of people would probably be upset about that so, <laughs> so it's, it's interesting that you said that because i remember uh there was a point in time where we were worried that the container fort was so obviously worse than the other mass size bases that people were going to just avoid going to that map. Because at that point in time, it did not have the castle doctrine bonus where you have the extra guys the, guarding the base, and it didn't have the eight beds. And we had already finished up the art, and we were gonna we were gonna try to add a large slot to it to balance it out with uh, like the three large slots in the barricaded strip mall and the three large slots in uh, the baseball field in uh, Meager Valley. Right. But it was there was no way to do that without redoing a bunch of other work, and so we had to find some way to boost it. And so it was like, what 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 passive bonuses can we put on this thing that will make any kind of sense? Um at one point we were gonna we we still might do this one day. It's like it's somewhere deep on a list of nice to haves of like opening one of the containers that's currently closed and just oh look, here are those beds. Just to try and give them some physical representation, because they're basically a stat under the hood. And then yeah. the watchtower stuff. Uh, was basically just placing some extra points and then just choosing not to charge the player ammo because we were so worried that people weren't going to get enough value out of it for not having a third large slot. We basically gave it a free large slot's worth of stuff and then some. And now it inevitably became this like relative, like I think we overcorrected if we look back honestly. Like it's probably a little bit too good. Right. I, I think it's probably too good. You know, a lot of people do think it's like the best base and I kind of, you know, stay away from the container port now because for me, the container fort is a base that really anyone can, you know, sustain. Like, you know, whether you're a new player, whether you're a veteran player, pretty much anyone can make the container fort sustainable. And it's because of those passive eight beds. But, you know, not everyone can make every other base sustainable. And that's why I try to go for other bases instead of that. Exactly. So, like, it, it's actually, it's interesting to me because the, the exact reason that you don't want to play the container fort is why I don't actually want to make it worse. Like, there are players that are not going to get so far down the rabbit hole that they understand exactly how to min-max and make any base self-sufficient. And so having something that's a little bit potent, where they don't right. have to be, like, masters of the game to feel like it's paying off for them and, like, it's working out and make them feel strong and powerful, like, that's nice. That means that more people get to experience the sort of emotional texture of what you get to experience without necessarily having to make that kind of crazy time investment. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. You know, my favorite base, and I don't know if you have any stories you can tell me about this base at all, but my favorite is Lock and Key. And one of the reasons I love that so much is that <laughs> I got a couple. The, the elaborate store, uh, storage, I love that feature. And that's the only base in the game that has that type of feature. And I really love that elaborate storage. What is it? So, uh, okay, I remember like the early concept art where we had like the Loch Ness monster on top of like a storage place. I remember at some <laughs> nice. point saying, like, okay, I want to do, like, it's a storage facility, and all the storage bunks are, like, slots in some way, and then the little jokey castle watchtower is also literally a watchtower. Like, that was basically the starting point for that. And then uh, the rest of it was, like, we, I was saying to, like, Brand at some point, I'm like, all right, what are, 
what do people find on storage wars that would be useful in the apocalypse? And like, we had this big old conversation. It's <laughs> funny. And then like that led to like, um, it's actually one of the few places where we use a rare piece of tech where when you load the map, we actually have the ability to randomize which facilities spawn in which slots. And like over the course of development, we just realized we couldn't use that very often because it would mean that things were too inconsistent and like players wouldn't understand that their map generated a little bit different. Like in the early days of State of Decay 2, we expected that you would see multiple maps in one playthrough and that you would uh, spend less time on one map. But as the concept of the Blood Plague and the play cards and the Legacy arcs sort of took form, it became clear that like most people will never move maps. And if you look at the data, like the wide majority of players have never changed maps, like ever. So like for most people, like it's a one map game, and so they right. live on that one map at one time, and so you can't have too much variety in the bases there, or it'll screw up their balance for their experience. And so we pretty much took out the like randomizing of what facilities spawn where, but not the storage place, because we made three facilities that are break this down for free prizes, basically, like they're just full of loot. And uh, which, which is pretty cool, yeah. Uh, <laughs> thank you. Uh, and which <laughs> ones you get in your containers are random every time. And so you actually don't know if you're going to find like a bunch of booze or if you're going to find like a bunch of resources or a bunch of parts or whatever. Well, and with that base too, uh, one other thing I really love is the secret distillery. Cause you mentioned storage words. <laughs> I thought that was really interesting how you guys did that. Cause you can kind of picture that, you know, maybe there is somebody out there that has like a secret distillery just in a storage locker somewhere. So <laughs> oh, yeah, no, we had, God, we had a, at one point we had that. And then next to it, there was going to be like a secret garage and we were going to reliably spawn like the sports car, sports car we could find in there. Awesome. <laughs> and then, oh God, that was that was that was going to be hilarious. It was going to be like this auto mechanic um, auto shop in there, right next to the still. It, it was probably going to be overpowered, but it was still early days then, so we didn't know that. But then, uh, you know, we realized eventually that, like, oh, if you let cars get out of the base, a bunch of bad stuff happens, and so we had to just like move all of the stuff where the cars ever got closer than a parking spot to be less true. And so that particular facility just kind of fell by the wayside. But I'm glad the, the secret distillery managed to actually hold on. Yeah, that's something I really love. You know, I, that feature is really cool. And, you know, as someone that uses a trader leader a lot, it, it definitely helps me a lot, too. Nice. But uh, one last thing about that base, actually, is, you know, the elaborate storage. I mentioned I love that. Is there a reason that that is the only base that has that and something like Container Fort doesn't? Because you could picture the Container Fort might have, like, elaborate storage as well because it has a lot of containers. Uh, it actually did for a while. It had a bonus called Storage for Days, and it gave you, like, plus 20 to all storages. Um, that was back when it didn't have uh, the guards passive as a bonus. Stuff? Okay. It didn't have the passive beds. And we basically, like... The problem with storage is that it's it's not very sexy. Like, people don't get excited about resource storage, or at least the people who can get excited about resource storage are a much smaller fraction than people that get excited about true, true. not worrying about beds or, like, having a bunch of guards. And so we sort of had to swap the bonus out. Um, at some point, it had both bonuses, and then we realized that you could put some facility mods in the slot, and then you wouldn't be able to see what their passive benefits were because we literally filled up the whole UI. And so ultimately, we had to pick one of the bonuses to live, and people found the plus eight beds more valuable. So the storage bonus went away. But for a long time, that was the bonus to the container for it, was this base is literally made of storage. We will put our things in the base because the base is made of containers. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. You know, it it's kind of worked out, I think, because, you know, the lock and key kind of has something unique to it that way. So yeah, no, it's I always like better if, like, yeah. the strengths, you want asymmetrical strengths with that. You don't want there to be, like, these three bases have the same good thing. You'd rather have it be, like, well, each base does its own weird little flavor of, of benefit. Right. It's kind of like, you know, Knight's Family Drive-In is so unlike any other base in the game. It's, you know, very unique in that sense. That was, what is it, that? I think that was actually the oldest base. Like, we made that one so long ago. Um, you know, that was that was the first base that ever had art made. Like, before we knew what the facilities were or would do, like, that came right out of concept art. 
uh, fun fact, I think the storage facility on that, like you go inside the kitchen with like the fryers and you go to the left. Right. And there's a tiny little room. And like that was the original size of a facility. And then we started oh, wow. doing more work. And then like the facility slot size got bigger and we lost an indoor slot on that base because it literally wouldn't fit the art that we were working on anymore. And so <laughs> that the makes little, sense. So like the, the, the tent, what, what are they called? The concession tent or something like that? Where like you go and you go left from the fence and there's a little tent with like an indoor slot there. Like we had to add that tent to the base because we lost the indoor slot that was originally built into the structure. No, and that's really cool too. Like I like hearing all these stories about these bases, you know, and the nice family drive in particular. I love how that base is kind of heart more challenging to deal with the bed situation. Yep. And, you know, that's kind of you know, the, the the big challenge with that base. You know, everything else on that base is pretty easy to sustain except for the beds. So yeah, uh, you, you, you have to figure do, out like, where you're at on there. Yep. Uh, I like to do asymmetrical strengths and then also asymmetrical weaknesses. Um, they are not trivial to balance and you'll often wind up having to cut a lot of them because it just means that the game has all the different potential experiences in it that you want but also means it's super difficult to QA and find all the weird interactions and bugs but you know where possible we wanted to do stuff like what is this base good at morale what is this base bad at having inside space yeah i guess that makes sense <laughs> and another base i wanted to mention real quick um is was it kind of like hard to plan okay where the bases are going to be on the map so like um you know okay this base is up north this base is over here because a base that really feels odd oddly placed to me anyways is more and more distributing it's way up in the corner of the map and there's like nothing for miles around it so like was it um something that was you know an intentional choice with that or so like we intentionally wanted there to be a variety of convenient access to resources like uh, if you think about the first game like the farmhouse was kind of in the middle of nowhere and having at least one base be relatively in the middle of nowhere gives it some character because the experience right. of living there is different. And so we wanted there to be like on a variety where like, what is it? You have like the corner office, which is like dead center in the middle of a... That has so much around it, yeah. Right. And then you have other stuff where it's like, you know, starter bases or like a little bit of build up. And then you have like the storage or more and more, which is just way out there. Um, that was the... Uh, God, I keep wanting to call it Amethyst because that's what we called it internally. But that was the first map we made. And so that one had like a lot of... It, it needed to look polished sooner than others because what you do for a lot of milestones or demos is you have to show something that looks pretty close to done and so that one just became like harder to change sooner than the other maps and it also like informed like oh because this is or isn't working on this map we can do different choices elsewhere and so it was kind of a prototype in certain senses although in other ways it is actually still like a very strong map experience uh if we could do it again i'd probably try to get a small a little bit more stuff maybe something like halfway towards the starter houses of like sites around that base, but ultimately right. like, it is valuable for us to have stuff that is a uh, super out of the way and feels remote. Um, you know, it would have been nicer if like we were able to look at that and say, okay, if this is going to be the remote one then we could give it like, maybe like there's like a garden built into the top, but it had a lot of space. So you could build that stuff yourself. Uh, I can tell you that the dam that was Northeast of that originally had like, like we were trying to figure out what legacy arcs were. Like one of the ideas was that we were going to try and put some like big custom thing on every map and, this is before leaders were a thing, and so legacies are just like this idea of a big quest at the end of the game. It was going to be the case that you would go to the dam, and like that would be the site of like some big final battle. But then ultimately, like the idea. Oh, that'd of having, be cool, right? Like we were trying to make like a yeah, that'd that be really, really cool. Like, yeah, but like we weren't going to be able to do it where the players were making choices about their communities and having those choices reflected in their quests. If those quests relied upon having each map have uber specific stuff, like that just meant that we were going to have to like shoehorn so many things into the maps and do so much specific scripting for so many edge cases that ultimately it was like we could do this a little bit but we couldn't do it in a way that reflects player choice without like going way over budget on time and so eventually right. like, like that area was originally intended to be like this crazy end game spot and then it just sort of got 
like tapered off and like sanded down and like, all right, this is, this is fine. And so it winds up with this very unique environment that, you know, doesn't have that kind of consequence anymore, but it, it always has a special place in our hearts because we remember spending so much time focusing on it. No, that makes a lot of sense to me too. And I guess there's some players out there that's probably, you know, the optimal experience for them because for example, if you're looking at, you know, I don't want a lot of infestations around my base, that's probably the base for you because there's basically only, you know, one or two spots that infestations ever spawn around that base. So. Yeah, and they'll just they'll just keep finding, like, the one shack by the cell tower. Right, the one shack, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. I, I guess if that's the experience you want, you know, then you can kind of keep infestations down by your base, so. <laughs> yeah, no, it's interesting to think about because, like, infestations are another one that, like, changed dramatically over the course of the game. Like, we had infestations before we had Blood Plague because infestations were from the first game, and so we knew we wanted them. And originally, infestations were supposed to just fill the parts of the map you hadn't been to with threat. Like, they were our way of dynamically... Like, there's this thing that happens where, um... Like, have you played Oblivion? Uh, no, but I've played Skyrim. Gotcha. So Oblivion did something Skyrim didn't do, where it would try and let you traverse the world in whatever order you wanted, and then it would get harder as you got higher in level, and then just sort okay. of dynamically adjust. There, you know, it wasn't perfect, but it was a really interesting idea. And so originally we were trying to do this thing where it's like, well, players shouldn't only go through the map in one order, they should be able to explore freely. And so how do you make a part of the map scarier without demanding that the player go there later? And our answer to that was like, well, whatever you haven't gone to, we'll just fill it with infestations. And by the time you get there, it's going to be like Zombie Town, um, which was an interesting idea. But ultimately, we weren't going to be able to get the sort of performance we wanted. Like just having that density right. of zombies causes lots of problems. The AI starts to break down in certain ways. The frame rate gets tricky. It was going to lower the amount of humans that we could have live even more than we already have to lower it. That definitely sounds like it'd be really scary, though, you know, going to that part of the map like, oh, shoot, look at all this stuff here. <laughs> that was always the hope. Um, the Plague Hearts sort of took over that, right? Because they actually do right. put a invisible box around them. And then inside that box, the game is more likely to spawn zombies, more likely to spawn plague zombies. The population limits are higher. And so, like, the play cards sort of do the same thing to a point, just in a smaller space, where it's this idea of, like, oh, this is a place I haven't been, and it's not safe, and it's very scary to be here. No, I, I appreciate that, too. But I, I'm sure um, there's people out there right now that are probably saying, you know, when they're listening to this back, they're like, Derek, why do you keep talking about these bases? You know, get to the good stuff. Like they're probably they're probably waiting for the choose your apocalypse stuff. So we should probably get into that a little bit now too. Yeah, totally. What would you like so, to know? <laughs> um, so what is something that you're really excited for people to see with your release that you know, um, they might not have, uh, they might not really, I guess, grasp fully, or they might not expect, maybe. Sure. Um, so like the biggest thing to that we were thinking about with uh, dread zones and nightmare zones is that. For a lot of players, like you can kind of ignore some of the stuff going on in the game because it's not tuned where it's particularly punishing. Like uh, for example, like something that I remember hearing about, um, I forget if th I think this was actually like somebody asking it on the the from the beta, where they were talking about how, hey, I had a survivor like start starving and like apparently I've got this morale penalty and a stamina penalty. Is that new? And I'm like, that's been in the game since the day we shipped. That's been in the game since two years <laughs> before that, yeah. we shipped. I'm <laughs> somehow both alarmed and not alarmed that you don't know it's there because like if you're the sort of player who's like super engaged in our game and you're playing the high difficulty like you've never worried about food but for some players like especially the ones that are like not going to jump onto like reddit or discord or twitter they're just going to like play the game because their friends told them about it or because you know they found that from their their game pass page and play it for a little bit like and not try to learn every single thing about it like it's entirely possible to run into that and so the idea with, with dread nightmare was in many ways to let the people who are good at our game experience the the challenges that are presented to them when all the different aspects of the game are dialed into where they just need more of your attention and like to separately from that pull down the amount of power you've got and the amount of resources you get to solve those problems like i'm sure you've seen screenshots or even this has been your game where you've got like 
57 guns and 400 of every kind of ammo and they'll just you'll just never be without choice and freedom to just go approach every encounter right. with free fire making tons of noise and all that stuff and like it's that's the experience you can get out of our game if you're very good at it that is not an experience you get out of our game if you are not very good at it like for for people that are just less you know i don't want to it's not purely skill some of it is also just like investment in terms of like how good are you at shooting stuff in a video game or like how much attention can you pay or you know how much distraction is going on in your house when you're on the couch like all these factors contribute to people having very different experiences and like our game at its best forces you to choose what problems to fix and gives you not quite unsolvable problems but sets it up where it's like it's the apocalypse you just need to survive another day here's all the crap that's going wrong what do you want to do how are you going to like get back to a place of, of hope where you feel like you've actually got control over this stuff and dread nightmare let us give that experience to people who have already sort of demonstrated levels of mastery in our game that mean that they're used to just ignoring stuff and ultimately like if you play it the way we played it like this happened to a lot of people in the shop after playtests you start to develop very different habits like like me and like Brant and a couple other folks were talking about it when we started these playtests where if you're used to just running around and just shooting every zombie you see all the time and just dodging directly into hordes and just throwing grenades and molotovs everywhere because whatever, I've got all the right. crap I can ever want. Like you, dread zones and nightmare zones will will have will have words for you. <laughs> it will not go well. Like, yeah, and that's kind of what I'm excited about for the dread and nightmare zones is that it's really going to change the meta, I think, because, you know, you can't do the same things in Dread and Nightmare that you're used to doing in standard mode, you know? Exactly. Um, like, you're going to have to play a lot more stealthy, and I think you're going to have to plan a lot more, too, because uh, I was in, involved in the beta as well, and I ran into a situation in the beta where I went into a warehouse, there was a juggernaut that, you know, kind of chased me in there. I'm like, right, whatever, you know, one juggernaut, you know, I'll, I'll just sort, uh, search this warehouse, no problem. But another juggernaut actually came up, you know, as well. And basically there was two juggernauts outside the warehouse and I was kind of pinned in there. More zombies, you know, because juggernauts obviously make noise, you know, they attract more zombies. More zombies just kept pouring in the warehouse yep. and I had to defend myself against those zombies. So I used a lot of resources to kill those zombies. And then I had to figure out a way to deal with the juggernauts. And yep. I ended up just, you know, trying to use whatever resources I had. And unfortunately for me, I was too fatigued at that point, and I didn't have a copy on me. So, you know, that's one of those things that, like, it's going to be more advantageous to you to think of these things in advance. Like, oh, I have to bring a copy with me, because I, if I would have had a copy with me, I would have been fine. But because I didn't have a copy, I was too fatigued to really do much about my situation. And I ended up just, you know, saying, screw it at one point, And I kind of just, you know, used some grenades in the juggernauts. I knocked them down quickly, but then they just charged me, and they, they took me out. So... <laughs> Right. So, like, in that world, like, like, do you ever run away from fights in the version of the game you're playing now? Honestly, not really, no. So, like, that's, that's, the, is it much of a zombie apocalypse game for you if you are so good at combat that you're never afraid of the outcome of a fight? Like, the costs are never so high that you're like, oh, this isn't worth it? Yeah, it, for me, I mean, it's still fun, you know, it's still fun to, you know, smash some zombies and stuff, but I think it provides a even better experience with what's coming in Nightmare, because... For the type of gameplay I like to do, it's going to be more rewarding for me because right. I kind of like where I have to actually think about it more and have to plan ahead because that's kind of where I got into problems with that situation is I didn't plan ahead because I'm so used to not having to plan ahead. Exactly. So I, that's exactly I just, you know, the thing. We yeah. And that, that's ultimately like that's the target for this release is to address that experience because like our game is at its best when you don't have complete control when you have limited resources and limited options and you have to make the best with what you've got and just find a way because there's a sense of satisfaction to solving a problem that is difficult to solve but if you get too good at our game it starts to fall apart in certain ways where it's just not able to present you with enough threat and enough right. challenge 
And like, you know, the, the, the amount of that's going to be different for everybody, right? And as for, for what it's worth, I think that the, the name of this update, like the Choose Your Own Apocalypse title is actually very specifically right because you are telling us what you need for the game to present a realistic experience of an apocalypse for you. And yours is going to be different than mine. And both of ours is going to be different for somebody who's never played the game before, who's also going to be different from somebody who like played the first game, but is just coming to the second one fresh. Like the idea is to give people a sort of an appropriate response where it's like, oh no, you're good at this. You understand all this. All right, great. We're going to dial all these things in and it's going to feel like it did for you before you knew all the answers. Yeah. And that's honestly what I love about this update too, is because, you know, we talked earlier how, there's some people that the standard mode, you know, is probably sufficient for them where they're finding a lot of difficulty with the standard mode. But for people like myself, you know, I'm going to jump into Nightmare and I finally have fear in Nightmare. You know, I'm finally afraid of things like I remember coming across an armored horde. I'm like, oh, crap. That was my first feeling. Was like, Oh, crap. An armored horde. Like, <laughs> like great. I'm, I'm delighted that that's your response, right? Like that, that feeling is like there's this, this phrase I've used before where it's like the game is not the code and the thing that goes out in a disc or that gets downloaded. The game is in the head of the player. Like right. the whole point of what you're doing is to just make people feel certain ways and try to create an engine that sort of reproduces that for them when they want it to. And so like ultimately like what we are doing is trying to make you feel like, oh, I need to be thinking about this. Oh, I don't want to go and fight every single thing that's there. I need to be more careful about it because ultimately like that is where your head would be if you were in the zombie apocalypse. And so the game just can succeed better at its core goals when the difficulty is appropriate for the player. And this is a, our way of saying, okay, here's a way to give more people a more appropriate level of challenge. Yeah, and I definitely appreciate that, you know, and I'm looking forward to it, you know. Um, I do have to ask, you know, the armored hordes and, like, the packs of ferals, was yep. that something that, yeah, you contributed as an idea, or was that, you know, <laughs> a kind of community idea, or what? Um, so, like, to be, to be, to make sure that, like, I'm reasonable to everybody, like, uh, I lurk a lot on our state of decay. Lots of people have lots of things to say. Some people have ideas, some people just have bugs, some people just want to fetch, some people have kind things to say to us. So, you know, you got to take it all in stride because it's a community and communities are going to have a large mix of feelings. There have been some very good ideas that we got from there. Um, maybe like having injuries come from like plague bites and having or injuries coming from bites in general and then like blood plague from plague bites being like super cranked up. Uh, I'm pretty sure somebody somewhere may have mentioned just more like what is it uh very like the feral mode mod video that was going around at some point yeah and so like that that wasn't the only input but like seeing that was definitely like all right there are some people out there for whom it is clearly very evocative to just see a sudden preponderance of freaks and just to be completely terrified about that and like what is the thing we can do within the rule set that we've got within tools that we've got that will like produce this for them in a way that we feel safe about we can actually like we can test it performance performance is going to be fine and um you know i remember like because uh I've been doing a lot of tuning with like what we call the ambient spawn, which is just spawning zombies around you and making the world feel correctly full of threats. And uh, the tech that we use to make hordes is actually pretty, pretty impressive to me in that it lets you just make a collection of any random grouping of zombies and then have the game treat it like a horde and have their AI be linked a little bit. And so at some point I was just like, let me just try putting three ferals together and see how that goes. And the answer to that was, oh, oh my, <laughs> this is kind of a thing. I think we need to hold on to this. And like, I remember serves, I basically worked a couple hours late that day. And the next morning was like, I remember checking this in a perforce and being like, added to game, screamer, choirs, bloater pods, feral packs, GLHF. Yeah. And correct me if I'm wrong, but in the beta version that I played, the feral packs wasn't actually a part of that. Or maybe I just didn't see it, but no, the, I definitely the, the didn't beta see build it. that you played was cut fairly early. That was back before we split Dread and Nightmare into two different zones. Um, you know, part of the iterative process of the product for us in this case was like, can we make a difficulty version of the game that is good enough for everybody? The answer to that was, we could do okay at that, but it'll be better if we can split it out further into like a hard and a oh crap right. hard. 
And so right. the, 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 the hordes that are made just of freaks, I believe, were added after the beta. Yeah, that makes sense. I didn't see a pack of barrels in that, but I remember seeing that on uh, last week's stream and seeing Brand take that on. I'm like, oh, man, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I both like want to take that on, but I also, you know, am, am fearful of that as well. So I'm, I'm like waiting to see the players that are like, well, I just brought out my full auto shotgun and my gunslinging red talent agent and I knocked them all out. What's up, Undead Labs? <laughs> Yeah. And I'm going to be like, fine, but now you're out of bullets. What next? <laughs> right. Well, and that's one of the things I think is going to be really interesting with the Choose Your Own Apocalypse is you're really going to have to decide what you want in your bag, you know, because yep. maybe you find, oh, I found, um, you know, this really cool gun that I want to take back to my base. I want to put this gun in my supply locker. So maybe in taking that gun, you drop some grenades that you had in your bag. And you're like, well, whatever, I can, I can get more grenades later. So I'm just going to leave those grenades here. Right. And then you come across an armored horde and you're like, oh, shoot, I wish I had those grenades. Yep. So. It's, it's interesting because, like, there's some stuff that you saw with, like, the Zed Hunter update and the other content updates that we've done that uh, might not be obvious as having been related to the Choose Your Own Apocalypse update. But, like, we were working on this for a long time. Like, uh, the fact that you can craft the crossbows at home was done because we were working on this update at that point and crossbows were so much more interesting in Dread and Nightmare. We were like, it should be, the player should have a version of these they can make themselves. And so, like, we went all the way to the top and we're like, we want to make, like, custom handmade ones, custom art, custom audio, custom icons, slightly different tuning in a couple of ways. And it needs to be something where, like, everybody can get their hands on these because we're going to make a version of the game where it's harder to find guns and we're going to make a version of the game where stealth is very valuable. And so we want to make sure that players like have the tools to solve those problems in a way that still feels fundamentally yeah. fair. And so like giving you the tools to craft it is sort of a way of giving it all a branch where it's like, all right, yes, there's less weapons, but now you can make a basic thing yourself and you can like learn to be stealthy by playing with that. And what was it? There was a, I mean, that, that, that seems to work pretty well if I look back on it. Yeah, I do sort of feel that the crossbows will become more of the meta as we go on because people are going to need that stealth experience more. So, you know, with the nightmare mode, I think the crossbows will be used a lot more, yep. which I'm glad we have them now. Yep. What is it? All the guns are louder, right? And the zombies. The bigger thing that it's interesting to see, because this is like of the numbers that we changed, I think this might be the most impactful for all of Nightmare and Dread, is uh, the amount of time zombies remember a noise that they've heard. Because what's happening in the base game, like, you're shooting a gun, and way more zombies hear you than you realize, but the ones that were the furthest away just don't get that close before they lose interest and walk off. And then by just dialing that number up, you get to a point where, even if you're using, like, the, the quietest suppressed twenty two rifle or whatever, um, enough zombies will hear you now. Uh, more zombies will hear you than before, but also they will be able to, like, pursue you all the way to your position. And so, like, if you want to use guns, like, you have to learn how to, like, stick and move and navigate the environment and be hyper-aware of all the positions. Right. Or, like, get on top of a box or something like that. <sighs> yeah. What is it for night? But we did a specific thing for that, because, like, the people standing on, uh, what is it, but somebody at work used the phrase getting treed, where, like, a jaguar gets somebody treed, where, like, you're up in the tree and the jaguar's scraping at the tree and you're, like, you can't go anywhere. Because that's, like, or QA would identify, like, hey, I can just jump on a car and, like, shoot all these zombies till I'm out of ammo. What will I do? And so we had to think about that, and the answer was was two things. It was way less ammo in general will make this less of a problem because you're going to feel less like the answer is to just dump two stacks of bullets into every zombie around a car. And then B, when the zombies can't hear you uh, and they scream, it makes, uh, I think, twice as much. I, I, I might be wrong about the exact number, but it's around twice as much noise. So, like, 2x the distance will hear you, and then that combines with the new noise memory raise. Oh, jeez, I didn't even know that part was in there. Way <laughs> more, like, if you put yourself up in a car and you're like, I'll just solve this from here, like, you will suddenly be swarmed by screaming, <laughs> oh, pissed off zombies. Uh, was it, we did the same thing with screamers for the same reason, where they'll make, like, twice as much sound, and then uh, screamers start showing up That's right awesome, away. That's awesome, actually. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, I, I didn't even notice that in the beta. You know, I don't know if that part was in there at that point, but um, I, I'm definitely glad to try that out. Yeah, I, I, please let me know how it goes. I'm, I'm, I'm actually really excited just to see what people's experiences are like, because ultimately with this sort of thing, you know, we're going to have an idea, like just with the base game, right? We're going to have an idea of what the experience is in our heads from our playtest that's going to be informed by our experiences, but it's not the same as knowing what everybody's experiences actually were. And so I'm just super excited to see like all the videos and what ifs and crazy stuff and the player stories that come out of this. So <laughs> really, really excited. Absolutely. <laughs> but I, I do have to ask about the beta specifically. Go ahead. Uh, the, the feedback that uh, myself and other players that were involved in it gave, did that actually help the process in any way? And if so, how did that help? So I think it was really useful for the decision to split Dread and Nightmare separately because you guys were having a really good time. And the way that it was valuable for us was the contrast between the feedback from Inside Under Labs and the beta. Um, you know, people who work on the game are not all to a person super duper experts about the game. And we were getting right. at least a decent amount of feedback where people were like, this is difficult to the point of being frustrating and I'm not having a good time right now. And like a lot of people were like really worried, like, I don't like the idea that we're going to drop this thing. And then those of us that do feel like we want a more difficult experience than the base game are going to find it too difficult that are not going to be able to have a good time. But because of the beta, we were able to see like, well, clearly some players do like this. And so ultimately we thought the answer was to take all the technology that we had built, which I'm very happy with the stuff that we put together because it lets us make like a scenario of the game with a bunch of modifiers on it. Like Dread is a scenario, Nightmare is a scenario. In the future, I'm sure we will get some benefit from this technology to make it easier to like just make game, like parameterized versions of the game in some way uh, in terms of like what specific experiences we want to put out there. Um, and so like having made it easy enough to do this on the way to making what eventually became a Dread Zone, we were able to siphon it off and literally like pick and choose what's going to be a Dread feature, what's going to be a Nightmare feature. And because of the beta, we were able to like know with confidence that this was going to be something people would receive reasonably well. Or at least that's that's still the theory. The beta helped us to be more confident about that theory. We will see what happens when we go live because you never know until it ships. But I'm cautiously optimistic. That's true. And were there things in the beta that you kind of you know, took feedback from that um, you sort of tweaked afterwards? Because I know for myself, one of the probably the only really criticism I had of the beta was the cars felt way too much like paper to me personally. And I think, you know, like I'd hit like, you know, one little rock or something like that. And then my car is already smoking. I'm like, seriously, like my car is already smoking. Like I understand <laughs> it's supposed to be harder, but like, you know, I hit like one little thing and it's like, it's already smoking. So like, I felt that was a little bit too frustrating personally. Gotcha. So, I mean, the, the version of car damage resistance that you'll see in nightmare is not quite as aggressive as it was in the beta. Um, okay. some, of what, some of what you're seeing is just the tuning approach that like I personally like to take where I will start with what is the most extreme version of this that I think might ever work. And then from there, we get a bunch of feedback. And then, uh, what is it? There's an old, like, a Sid Meier theory that you can find out there on the internet of game development where they talk about this idea of cut it in half or double it. Right. And so, like, you start with the crazy thing, and then you either you cut it in half or you double it. And then you keep on doing, like, a binary search of, like, going halfway towards the two next middle point, and then, then halfway in the right direction of the next middle point. And so, like, that kind of makes sense, actually. I mean, it's just an efficient way to figure out, like, what is the right number in a world where you could put in any number you can think of, and how do you use your time in an effective way to figure that out? And so we went out pretty aggressive because we knew that cars were, for so many people, like, this is why the game is not hard for me, is because I can always just jump in my car if I'm scared and just do donuts until all the zombies are dead. And it's not at all, like, how you want the apocalypse to go for people, even though it is really fun and there's a place for it in games, there's a place for it in our game. Like, if we're going to put something out that's going to be, like, the harder version, like, that should be something we address. And so it was definitely important to make sure that players felt that they should not treat their cars like they're 
cheap and effective in that way. And so it was like less cars, higher fuel costs in terms of making the gas cans at home. They didn't change the consumption rates on the cars. Um, like the cars start off with less gas and they start off more busted up. And then finally to like try and get you in a headspace where if the zombies are attacking your car, like you should not feel like that's easy to solve. Uh, we went, right. What is it? In the version that you played, the damage modifier for zombies grappling the car and you hitting zombies was the same. And the version that's going to go live on the 26th, um, zombies grappling the car is still very bad. Like, you cannot sit there and watch them attack you and just, like, munch on consumables for, like, 10 seconds without watching the car get <laughs> right. done smoking. But uh, you driving over zombies is not quite as punishing as it was, and you driving over rocks is not quite as punishing as it was. Okay, I'm glad to hear that, at least, because I definitely understand what you're going for, and I definitely understand the aspect of you're trying to make the cars less of a weapon, but in the beta version I played, it just felt like, too much of a frustration like because the cars are already scarce enough as it is that you know with the cars being already scarce enough as it is like if i hit like two rocks i, I would hope my car is not already destroyed and some of that's like we want you to to play this and come away from it going oh i should hit less rocks i should be like right. more more de- Which de- I, I get that too but yeah. <laughs> right like clearly there's there's a point where it is a little bit ridiculous right and you want to stay below that line so people don't break immersion but like the hope of the tuning is ultimately to change player habits because what that means is you are playing the game differently and the experience feels refreshed, right? The whole goal with all this stuff is ultimately to refresh the game for people that are currently playing it or maybe stop playing it recently and to give them like a good reason to come back and play because it should feel materially different. Like even without dramatically new content, the idea here is that we're recontextualizing all these things and we're putting you in a position where you have to think about things you didn't have to think about before, where you're going to engage with systems you didn't have to engage in before. And like for many of us, it made the game feel not quite new, but a lot closer to new than anything we'd done so far just because it's such a dramatic shift in, like, where you focus. So I'm excited. Uh, cautious optimistic. You guys will be excited, too. And I look forward to hearing how you all feel. Yeah, I'm definitely excited, too. And, you know, um, I just have a couple more questions quick before we go, you know, that um, I posed to my community, and they kind of uh, came up with some questions. So I, I took a couple of them. Oh, that's um, awesome. What you got? One is from uh, Fall Down Go Boom, who I'm sure you're familiar with. <laughs> I think he's on his <laughs> <kid> today. <laughs> yeah. um, he says... How does he plan on dealing with armored zombie hordes and nightmares? So how would you personally deal with the armored zombie hordes if uh, you're coming up against them? All right. So the habit I've developed for armored zombie hordes is that I have gotten a lot more focused on uh, the grappling combat that we have, which is one of those things that, like, I would wager that a large majority of our players do not know that you can do this. And those that do know it are like, oh, it's the coolest thing. Uh, So if you, like, dodge through one armored zombie and then you grapple them, uh, hold onto the grapple and then use the left stick to just move yourself around. You can use the right stick to aim. Um, if you shove a zombie that you were grappling, it will knock over the other zombies around it. Like Interesting. Like This has been there the that. whole time, but it's the sort of thing that you didn't really ever need to use, so it doesn't come up. Right. There's like a couple of help tips, but it's it's not something that players are forced to do with a lot, but I expect it will be a very useful tool nightmare. So what I have historically done to survive uh, the armored horns, because fire's not going to do it, and guns aren't going to do it, and like regular melee is, is tough unless you're like specialized and you could do like the knockdowns and the leg removals, is I will get the one, I, I will usually try to run away a little bit till one of them gets close to me. Ideally, they'll actually do that tackle where they try to charge you and then you dodge just right, right. when they fall down. And then I will grapple that one and then shove him at his friends to knock down three or four of the others. And then I will try and just chain finishers through the group while staying kind of far away. Um, I always, at this point, hold on to huge piles of energy drinks or snacks or other stamina items in a Nightmare. Just because like the solutions I've developed for combat tend to be very stamina intensive. Especially with the grappling and the throwing stuff. That makes sense, yeah. But you can do this to, if you get good at that particular way of fighting zombies of just using finishers and grapples and items you can avoid losing too much durability and you can avoid making a lot of noise which become much more important to nightmare yeah and for me you know in the beta i hadn't developed my technique yet so 
basically my solution in the beta was just toss a frag grenade at him, make him all crawlers, <laughs> and, and then deal with it. So. I mean, if you've got frag grenades to spare and you want to deal with the noise, yeah. like more power to you, right? <laughs> exactly. So that's kind of what I did. I just tossed one frag grenade at him. They all became crawlers, and I just dealt with the crawlers after that. So <laughs> that, that will work. There will be consequences, but that will work. Yes. <laughs> so there the are different ways to deal with it. <laughs> that's very true. But um, the only other question I had was actually from Scarproof. Yep. He asks, if you had a nine-person community in Nightmare Zone, what would their hero traits be? So oh, I basically, man. I think what he's trying to ask you is, what hero traits um, <laughs> would you recommend? <laughs> what, what should I randomly reroll until I find these exact things? Um, yeah. Let's see. So you don't have to mention nine, but like you know, if you have a couple, oh, like, yeah, oh, just like this the bigger, trait, this trait, yeah. yeah. Um, the the stuff that what is it? The sleeps and shifts and anything related to beds is always nice because it just frees up space at home. Um, and like finding and settling outposts is generally harder in Nightmare just because you have to survive to get to them. Uh, the influence costs are, we didn't change them, but like influence is a lot more feast famine because like when you tend to get it, it's like you survived a crazy ass fight, but sometimes you like need to use it to like re-up your stuff. And so like, it's a little bit less trivial to just like go get all the exact outposts you want and spend all that influence. So I definitely would want something on beds cause that saves me there. Um, resource per day stuff, especially on Nightmare, especially food super good um fishing is, is is quite effective in nightmare to the point where i'm like a little bit thinking about if we should do probably not but i always think about it um so like i try to focus on characters that can like give me food per day because people need more food in nightmare and the morale is lower and so you don't want to let them get into that territory where they're leaving because it's like hard to recruit people um, that is true because it's a little bit harder to find more recruits uh, i actually see a little bit more value in the guys that provide bonus labor um just because like you could get to a point where it's like, oh, I need to recruit somebody so I can build this thing that requires four people and I'm stuck with my starter three. And like, I finally recruited somebody, but like my other guy died on the way home. And so like, I don't have enough labor to do this. And so like that tends to be a little bit more useful. Um, health and stamina are always solid. Um, you know, if you're in that world where like you've been rerolling characters and items across legacies forever, like you can get really used to having everybody just all buffed up and maxed out. But that, you know, in a world where you're not going in a nightmare as loaded to the gills as you can and you're trying to play it sort of on its own terms those things are super potent because like you probably don't have a giant pile of maxed out yeah and for me i'm always a big component of just keeps going that's always my favorite trait yeah. and that's the one that adds 45 stamina and minus 40 percent uh, oh you actually mean like so. the trait traits i thought you meant like the hero bonuses specifically this is what i was thinking about no no yeah yeah uh, he no, said I hero don't... bonuses yeah but yeah i, I mean well, he said hero traits, so he could have made hero bonuses or traits, but yeah. I mean, I was just calling out just keep going as, you know, something that I really uh, plan to try and roll for. Oh, it's fantastic. I mean, it, so this is actually how I play our game. Like, I don't re-roll a ton. I will usually re-roll until I have the fifth skills that I want, or like fifth skills that I think would be interesting to play as a combination. But like, I don't min-max to the point where I'm like, I'm going to spend 45 minutes waiting to get the immortal <laughs> right. and also the 45 health character at the same time for all three of my slots. And like, for what it's worth, I... I like the game better when everybody is kind of vulnerable. Like, what is it? I've, I've talked to Jeffrey about this. We're like, it's not amazing that you can find characters that have no downsides. Like, I'd honestly rather see our game live in a world where, like, everybody has some downside and they're relatively balanced because otherwise you just wind up with this, like, you're filtering for Adonises that are just like these invul invulnerable, crazy, jacked up human beings. And uh, it's not quite. Like, the game is literally not tuned to where it's going to be super hard for you if you have all of that stuff all the time. Like, especially on the base game, like, Nightmare and Dread are going to do a better job of challenging you on that. But, like, I try not to play the version of our game that comes out when you literally max every health and stamina and injury thing on every character every time. Yeah, I understand that. I, I'm kind of in between where I will re-roll to, like, get a certain, you know, trait or skill that I like. But I'm not going to do that to the point where, like, okay, every character I have is, you know, perfectly matched. Like, 
I'll re-roll characters until like, oh, this character has something I like. Okay. Oh, next character. Oh, this character has something I like. So that's kind of how I do it. I do it in between where like, oh, this character has, you know, indefatigable. That's good enough for me. I'll, I'll go to the next character. You know what I mean? So. <laughs> yeah. If I get one of those things, I'm like, this is great. I'm going to stop. This is fantastic. But like those, they should feel rare, right? Like those are awesome right. when they are not the norm. If that becomes normal, then it just sort of like desaturates things and like, eh. I like I like the world, but it's got mistakes in it too. Not when everybody in it is perfect. Yeah, and I will call out, you know, because Scarproof's the one that's been um, kind of spreading this around. That the minus hundred percent infection resistance trait—that's going to be a key trait for Odd Nightmare for sure. That if you can get that, that will make your life a lot simpler when it comes to dealing with blood plague. That's true. Yes, definitely. And I did actually manage to get one character that had that. I had a red talent I recruited that had that, so nice. that's nice. <laughs> Very nice. But um, unless you have anything else to uh, mention, real quick. Um, you know, that's all the questions I had. Uh, no, I'm mostly just excited to see what people think about Choose Your Apocalypse when they check it out on uh, March 26th. Um, you know, come check us out on Discord. Tell us how you feel about it. Post about it on Reddit. Hit us up on Twitter. Talk to us in the stream. Wherever wherever your messages are given, we will be happy to hear you. Awesome. And, you know, I will be streaming that. Um, you know, I'll be streaming it on the day it releases, March 26th from 12 p.m. to 4 p.m. Eastern Time. It may not release uh, right when I'm streaming, but it should release sometime around that time is what I'm thinking. So I'm going to be streaming around that time, and you know I'll, I'll jump into there. And uh, right after that's going to be the Undead Lab stream pretty much, so we can uh, go watch them play it as well. So. That'll be a good day. <laughs> and uh, also, as I mentioned, um, Generation Zero is another game I'm interested in that actually comes out the same day. So I will be doing a night stream uh, later that night, like maybe at 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. or something, just to give that game from this coverage as well. So if you are interested in that game, I will be doing a little bit of coverage of that game on stream. And our next podcast is going to be 329 on Friday. I'm going to talk to Jeffrey Card, and I'm going to go over the patch notes. So um, I don't have the patch notes yet, but I'm sure Brian can tell me there's some interesting things in there that we'll, we'll enjoy. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so uh, I'll be interested to find out what those are. So I'm going to talk to Jeffrey about those, and that should be a fun podcast as well. And if you want to find the podcast, you're obviously already listening to it, but there's a bunch of other ways that you might not have known about. There's uh, Stitcher. We're on Spotify. We're on iTunes, Google Podcasts. We're on YouTube if you want to check YouTube. Basically, any other directory you could think of, we're, we're there. So, you know, check out the directories that you like, and we're there. And if you want to contact me, you can find me on Discord. I'll have the Discord in the show notes. You can contact me via email, theblazexperience at gmail.com. My Twitter and Xbox Gamer Tag is the same thing. It's at Blaze Experience. That's capital B-L-A-I-S-E, capital X-P-E-R-I-E-N-C-E. And those are the main ways to contact me. I'm usually more responsive on Twitter and Discord more than um, other places. And I will mention real quick, we do have a Patreon now. We finally made that. So if you do enjoy the content that we're doing here, then um, definitely check out our Patreon. It's patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Blaze Experience. And this is basically a way to become a member of what we're doing here, and you get some uh, cool rewards with that. You get, like, access to uh, bonus podcasts, um, you get some stream rewards, and different things like that. So check that out if you're interested in that. But, Brian, if people want to get in touch with you more so, how can they do so? Um, easy ways to do that are to come hang out on the Undead Labs Discord, which uh, probably find a way to link to after this. Uh, or you can find me on at Brian Giami on Twitter. That is at Brian, B-R-I-A-N, and Giami, which no one spells right, G-I-A-I-M as in Mary E. Awesome. So thank you for being here today with me. You know, it was a lot of fun to talk to you, and hopefully uh, people aren't too upset by how much spent we spent on bases, but I just love bases. So. <laughs> you and me both. <laughs> exactly. So hopefully people aren't you know, too upset, like, oh, man, I had to go through 45 minutes to get to the other stuff. <laughs> but hey. <laughs> 
but they're also <laughs> wonderful and unique. Exactly. <laughs> All right. But thank you, Brian. I really appreciate you being here. And thank you, everyone, for listening to The Blaze Experience. Thank you.